Welcome back to Banter, a policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C. I'm Spencer Moore. We have a terrific show for you today. Our guest is AEI's Henry Wintchair and political economy, Dr. Nicholas Eberstadt. And Dr. Eberstadt's joining us to discuss a recent paper he published titled China's Demographic Outlook to 2040 and its Implications, an Overview. But before we get into our interview with Dr. Eberstadt, I did want to make a quick banter-related announcement, and that is that after nearly two years of co-hosting with me, Cece Gallagly has accepted a position at the Harvard Kennedy School. So we thank her very much for her service to AEI, and we wish her all the best in her new role. Joining me today is our new co-host, Matt Weinsett. I want to introduce Matt and welcome him. Matt, thanks for being here. Thank you, Spencer. It's an honor to replace Cece. Absolutely. Uh, We're glad to have you. So, Matt, Uh, Real quickly, before we get into our interview, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do here at AEI? Sure. So I've been at AEI for a little over a year and a half now. For most of that time, I was the managing editor of AEI's blog, AE Ideas. Mm -hmm. But as of last week, I moved down to our comms department, now working for our digital strategy team. But I would say the most important thing I do here is uh, captaining AEI's vaunted championship winning softball team. Yeah, and I believe that's the the two-time champion, Think Tank Softball League champion here in D.C. Yes, I was only captain for one of those, but I'll take full credit uh, for both. As you should, as you should. Well, Matt, thanks so much for being here. We appreciate it. For now, though, let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back with our guest, Dr. Nicholas Eberstadt. Hi, I'm Nat Malkus, host of The Report Card on the AI podcast channel. The Report Card features one-on-one interviews with policymakers, practitioners, and reformers at the center of education policy and practice. Listen to my interview with Governor Bruce Rauner on the Janus Supreme Court decision, or my recent talk with Jenny Radeski, author of the American Academy of Pediatrics Screen Time Guidelines for Children. Check out The Report Card by subscribing to the AI podcast channel, on your favorite podcast player. And we're back with our guest today, Dr. Nicholas Eberstadt. Dr. Eberstadt, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, of course. So let's talk about your paper. And once again, that paper is titled China's Demographic Outlook to 2040 and its Implications and Overview. You talk about the reliability of data on population in China. Is that data reliable? And you know, should we trust it as we're looking two decades into the future? Well, I think if uh, we were to talk with another AEI colleague, uh, say uh, Derek Scissors, who deals with the national accounts GDP data, he'd say the population data is incredibly reliable compared to the economic data. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's just in comparison to it. For a country with so many trained statisticians, demographers, with such a big administrative statistical apparatus, the population information is surprisingly problematic. Mm. And there are big inconsistencies between each census and the following census. China does not yet have complete coverage of births and deaths, what we call uh, more or less complete vital registration information. Uh, The main problem is that when you are running a coercive, punitive, anti-natal national uh, policy, as Beijing did from the early 1980s until just practically yesterday, parents have enormous incentives to misrepresent or hide the number of children they have. Right. 
So we have this uh, continuing miraculous process of spontaneous generation of 11-year-olds who weren't counted as one-year-olds yeah. in censuses 10 years earlier. And these are, these are pretty big discrepancies. Um, we can... Um, we can hope that in the future, uh, now that the one-child and the two-child policies have been officially scrapped, that maybe these particular incentives for misrepresentation won't be there in the future. But I'm not entirely sure that we won't find other new perverse policy incentives for misrepresenting totals. So when you're writing a report like this, I mean, how do you overcome some of those challenges to look at 2040 with any certainty and say, this is probably what the population is going to look like? Excellent question. Excellent question. Um, for one thing, we have the advantage in population counts that we don't have in GDP data of having essentially a closed system. In principle, the number of people next year should be the same as the number of people this year, net of births, deaths, migration, and making everybody one year older. And if that doesn't happen, then something's funny, and you can try to figure out what the inconsistencies are. Um, second thing that we have going for us here is that for better or worse, the overwhelming majority of people who are going to be alive in China in 2040 have already been born and they're already living there. Almost all of China 2040's working age populations already born and living in China today. Uh, absolutely all of the pension age population is born and living there. Uh, if we were doing something like this with a small country which has a lot of migration, let's say like uh, Singapore, we'd have some real problems. But even though the actual streams of migrants out of China are very large in absolute numbers, hundreds of thousands a year, it's basically a rounding error in comparison to a population that's on the, on the order of 1.4 billion people. So uh, one thing that demography is pretty good at is figuring out what survival schedules will be under non-catastrophic circumstances. Catastrophic, well, then we're all up in the air. But if it's a non-catastrophic circumstance, it's basically actuarial tables. It's like the insurance industry. The life insurance industry hasn't gone out of business for a reason. They've got some math behind them that actually works. So we have a tolerably good idea of the, uh, let's say, of the population that'll be 21 years older, old and older in 2040. When you start to guess how many people, uh, how many babies, let's say, the unborn are going to have, you're just off in science fiction. Mm. But we don't have that much science fiction when we're looking at 2040. Great. So one of the uh, predictions or projections you made in the report is that China's population will peak over the next decade or so. What are some of the factors? I assume everybody thinks of the one-child policy, but other than that, what are the main factors contributing to the peak? Well, of course, of course, you're right, Matt. It's the uh, birth birth rates over the long run rule. They rule everything over the longer term, and what we've witnessed in China, irrespective of these data questions I mentioned, but we've clearly witnessed over the last generation and more, is below replacement childbearing patterns. And if you have below replacement childbearing patterns over any long period of time without compensating immigration, you know exactly what's going to happen. Uh, you know that 
first the working age population is going to peak and then go down as far as a demographer's eye can see. You know that a little later on, the total population numbers are going to do the same. And what's uh, counterintuitive but inescapable is that uh, sub-replacement fertility also causes rapid, pervasive population aging that maybe we'll talk about a little later. But so below replacement fertility, and there's no doubt that China's uh, childbearing levels are way below replacement. People will debate about are they uh, 25% below replacement? Are they 40% below replacement? But they're way below replacement. That just inexorably leads to a peaking and then a decline of working age population and also to very significant shifts in the composition of working age population in ways that aren't necessarily favorable for the economic outlook. We want to get into that for sure, the economic, economic outlook of China in 2040. I wonder because immigration is such a hot topic in the United States, if you can speak to Chinese policy toward immigrants coming into the country. I think a lot of people really don't know if they welcome outsiders or if immigration is uh, largely limited. Well, China does encourage immigration on a selective basis. They're the so-called sea turtles. The Chinese overseas diaspora Uh, better if they're entrepreneurial, better if they're high-skilled. But the Chinese policy is, uh, at least in theory, welcoming a return of highly skilled ethnic Chinese. And by the way, that group was absolutely instrumental in Deng Xiaoping's, uh, let's call it a revolution, they needed to have the talent from abroad to, in so many different areas to get that jump started. Um, outside of ethnic Chinese, there's also a curious and interesting phenomenon of at least, let's say, tolerance of non ethnic Chinese foreigners coming to China. And it's not just. Uh, you know, uh, U.S. or European professors who are going to be teaching math uh, in Fudan University uh, in what was formerly called uh, Canton in, uh, in Guangzhou. Uh, there's a large community of African-born entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't hear much about it. Right. But it's curious. Never uh, heard so, about that. <laughs> those, I know. So there, uh, the, let's be very clear. The Chinese government has a lot of problems with its ethnic minorities. It's got whole big uh, archipelagos of what would kindly be called uh, re-education centers for some of the uh, ethnic minorities of uh, cultural, historical Muslim descent out in Xinjiang for for the Uyghur population. But there's also more tolerance for some immigrants from other areas of People who are not uh, freighted with historical national security uh, alert uh, than one might think. In terms of net inflows, though, are they losing more people who are emigrating to the United States definitely. than they are gaining? Oh, definitely. It's, uh, China, China remains a net uh, out-migration uh, society. And 
I think we can uh, imagine that that will uh, continue until something absolutely uh, remarkable changes the whole world composition. I mean, think of it this way. Um, People who want to go overseas to uh, to study in the best schools, and you've got what uh, practically a hundred thousand Chinese in America's best uh, universities and schools. Uh, that's that's one. Uh, Impetus. Uh, the enormous gap in uh, wages and salary levels between China, even though uh, Shanghai and other places are pretty Western, and uh, OECD countries is another uh, is another factor in this. Uh, so I think there may be a hunger in China today and tomorrow for mail-order brides from abroad, given the imbalance between young boys and young girls. But um, we we get into a realm of speculation or science fiction and trying to guess how many voluntary or involuntary brides from abroad China may uh, bring in. And we definitely want to get into the gender imbalance issue. But before that, you mentioned the effect of aging on the Chinese population. And there's this really interesting uh, graph you included in there called the age distribution of great innovation in the 20th century. And I was wondering, the point of that graphic essentially was that people's Nobel Prizes patents usually happen when they're late 30s, I believe, according to the research. And in the coming decades, the Chinese population is going to have a lot fewer late 30-year-olds and a lot more older people. Do you expect, is innovation going to decline in China? Is that, what lesson do you want people to take from that? Well, um, Matt, the graph that you're referring to is from a study by an economist named Ben Jones uh, on exactly that topic. And uh, what he mapped out was the distribution of awards uh, to Nobel laureates, uh, sorry literature, sorry peace, but in the economics, uh, medicine, you know, uh, chemistry, you know, physics area. Um, Not the age when people got the award, but when they did the work that earned the award. And about two-thirds, maybe maybe slightly more than two-thirds of the awards were handed out for work that people did between the ages of about 30 and 44. Now, we don't want to get too deterministic about this. I would say this is food for thought rather than a fixed mathematical uh, law. Uh, But what we know in China is that that particular age group is set to decline both in absolute size and in relative importance in the adult population. Uh, We also know that the young blood is, uh, per the childbearing patterns of the recent past, uh, heading south real fast. The absolute and relative size of the under 30s is uh, set to plunge. Uh, what What is the under 30s population? They're the people with the best training, with the highest educational attainment. Maybe they're the most mobile and flexible too. The only uh, the only people of working age in China. Uh, that are in a growing group relatively and absolutely are people my age in their 50s or 60s. And in China, 
these are the people who went through the Cultural Revolution. These are people who did not get an education. Uh, a guy my age in China has got a less than even chance of having a degree. And when I say a degree, I mean a grade school degree. <laughs> so this is not what the economic planners would want to They don't, they don't get diplomas from the re-education No, I, I, I don't think they brag about them. They're written in uh, pig manure, I think. So... All of this is changing the uh, changing the composition as well as the size of the working age population in ways that are uh, creating big economic headwinds. I think for the future. Can you talk about? I mean, you, we've referenced some more microchips, but more on the macro level, the the over sixty five crowd. I mean. Sure. How is that going to change in the sure. next two decades, and what's going to happen to the fifteen to sixty four sort sure. of prime age labor market? Oh, absolutely. Well, so. The population control campaign and the big drop in fertility um, happened in the, uh, 19, the 1970s was the beginning of the drop in fertility and the 1980s was a population campaign. So the group before those years is now the group that's moving towards senior citizenship. And uh, that group is on track to experience an absolutely fantastic population explosion. It's on track to grow by almost 4% a year between now and uh, 2040. I think that counts as a population explosion. This means that China is on track overall to get gray at a faster trajectory than almost any society in human experience to this point. The only big country to this point that was on a similar escalator, gray escalator, was Japan. Uh, Japan did this over the past generation. But as we know, Japan was an affluent society when it got old. And China's going to get gray before most of it gets rich. And that's not a lot of fun. Well, you totally preempted our next question there, which is asking about if there's any historical analogs about this. I know other countries have attempted to increase their fertility rates, met with limited success. Is there anything you think China could do to increase fertility if it decided it wanted to? As you indicated, Matt, I, in my view, uh, and this is contentious in some demographic circles, in my view, pronatal population policies are expensive and at most of limited demographic effectiveness. You, know, you can use police state bayonets to try to threaten people to have fewer kids. It's kind of hard to use them to make people have more babies. And it's hard to bribe people to have more children than they want to or feel that they can, quote, afford. Uh, but China's repressive uh, police state apparatus is evolving in some fascinating and I think quite terrifying ways. Um, you've heard, I'm sure, of this um, social credit rating system mm -hmm. that the Chinese government is already rolling out um, using uh, uh, the 
power of fintech and the power of artificial intelligence and the fact that so much in the way of uh, commercial activity in China has kind of uh, leapfrogged over credit cards right into people's phones and stuff. Um, there's an enormous, if you will, treasure trove of information that the Chinese government now is weaponizing to try to come up with incentives and disincentives of a market sort to make people into better party members or more obedient and pliant uh, subjects. So uh, if your commercial activity and your other activity indicates that you're not really with the program, it may be real hard for you to f get on a flight or to rent a car or to uh, get uh, an apartment. Uh, this whole new system may be turned towards a sort of a uh, really um, broad set of coercive pokes to people, among other things, to try to encourage them to have more babies than uh, they would otherwise wish. I don't know if this sort of marketized totalitarian approach is going to be more effective with pronatalism if the Chinese state d determines that more babies are what the state wants than previous baby bribes. But I think we may find out. We may have a live experiment uh, in front of us in a number of years in this question. You talk a lot in the report, uh, I think it's interesting, about changing family structure and that there might be people in their middle age and going into their 40s and 50s that have no aunts, uncles, they have no cousins, brothers, sisters. I mean, what does that mean for Chinese society? And does Chinese society typically, like, who takes care of older people? Is it the family structure? And what happens when you take that away? So this is a huge leap into the unknown that uh, the Chinese society is taking over the next generation. And there's no stopping it now. It's, I mean, this is, this is baked into the cake. Um, if, uh, if we see only children begetting only children, the inescapable result of this, as you indicated, are boys and girls without siblings, without biological consanguineous siblings, or cousins, or uncles, or aunts, or any of that stuff. Just ancestors and maybe someday descendants. Now, this is not all of Chinese society, and it's not even most of Chinese society. Uh, very little rural China is this new family type we're describing, but an awful lot of urban China is this. And urban China is the growth engine and the nerve center for politics, coercion, and all of the rest. Uh, so what happens when... Uh, an institution that has been central to life, culture, and everything else in Chinese history for 2,500 years suddenly undergoes a first-time-ever radical shock. Uh, I don't think we know yet. I mean, some of the things we can see is, uh, would be the inexorable atrophy of the extended family system. The extended family system has been a survival system for people in China for 100 generations or more. Um, 
Maybe China will become such a lawful, transparent, prosperous place that people won't need that survival mechanism anymore. We have to hope so, because whether that happens or not, that mechanism's gone for a lot of people. It may have other sorts of implications that we can't even guess yet. What happens when the People's Liberation Army is made up of these only children begotten by only children in some appreciable degree? Is that going to affect casualty sensitivity on the part of the of people who are not living under a democracy but still have opinions about this? Or, or to take the game to a second level, will the rulers of China assume that there's a casualty sensitivity and caution their own ambitions on fear that there may be uh, eruptions of social anger in the face of large casualties? We don't know this stuff, but significantly, the Chinese leadership doesn't either. And I've done demographics on China for you know decades and decades. Um, Chinese researchers do wonderful work on education, fertility, uh, marriage patterns, urbanization, all of this. As far as I can tell, there's no work on this extended family network thing. Uh, almost no work anywhere. It's not on the research agenda of Chinese universities or Chinese think tanks that feed the state council and the planners, so far as I can see. Um, what that suggests to me is the possibility of what we would call in other venues a strategic surprise. When something big happens and you haven't thought about it or you haven't prepared for it, you can get surprised. Yeah. I was hoping you would get to this point about the PLA. In the context of that, you also tell the story of the Sichuan, forgive my mispronunciation, sure. no, that's exactly right. uh, earthquake and how that the reaction to that and how that affected the Chinese leadership. Do you mind going into sure. what that was and why you think that might apply well, to the PLA? As well, let's. Uh, what we can't tell is whether this Sichuan earthquake a little more than a decade ago was a dress rehearsal for what might happen later on. But we do know what happened in real life here. So in 2008, I think it was in the spring, maybe in May of 2008, there was a terrible earthquake uh, in a very large province in China. And thousands and thousands of people perished in the earthquake. But some people were more likely to perish than others. Um, if you were a member of the party and working in a party headquarters, you had reinforced solid buildings. Uh, not a lot of trouble there. If you were a school child in a building that was kind of shabbily made and maybe uh, where people were cutting corners and making extra money off of skimping on things, thousands and thousands of children died. And when many of those children died, they ended their family line because this is a one-child program mm -hmm. area. Um, it, I don't know if, like, if for us Americans, you can uh, express the sense of horror, uh, metaphysical horror that someone from this Confucian tradition and setting feels when they hear about the extinction of a family line. It's, it's more than just a personal or an immediate family tragedy. It's more like a metaphysical injustice and tragedy. And there was a, 
explosion of social anger, not just in Sichuan, but across China, about what this obvious injustice, this needless death of so many uh, children, and also the destruction, needlessly, of so many uh, family lines. And it was one of the very few times that uh, the rulers of communist China went on an apology tour. But they went on. An ap- they felt they had to go on an apology tour because of this. So this was a completely domestic tragedy. What would happen, may we ask, thought experiment, if there was a big loss of life in some sort of an international event which was judged after the fact to have been uh, poorly warranted? say. I mean, you know, uh, victory may uh, create not just a thousand fathers, but a thousand family lines, who knows. But if it doesn't work out so well and people are starting to hand out the blame, um, how does that affect things? I don't think we know yet, but it's worth asking. So we're running out of time. Let's bring this home a little bit to um, how the United States policy should be toward China, given the demographic changes in the next two decades. I mean, should we be looking at this and shifting our policy based on that? And do you think that the you know reports that the next century will be the Chinese century are a bit overblown given the chances for possible unrest that you mentioned? Well, first of all, uh, I have been a critic of Chinese population control programs for almost 40 years. And uh, I mean, since the beginning of this. It is. It was a clue at the beginning that China was not reforming the way that so many people said at the time. Uh, yes, of course, there was more economic experimentation, but if you looked at the totalitarian uh, impulse behind population control, that was maybe the best predictor of how the Chinese regime was going to act. Um, I think to this day, we should regard population control as an anathema to champions of human rights. And that's on a table of its own. Uh, that's, that's a non-negotiable, I would say, for all people interested in human rights and human dignity. As far as the consequences of unfolding population trends are concerned, if you, if you think that China's uh, economic trajectory is going to be affected mainly by business climate and uh, trends in human resources, you'll tend to be a little bit more cautious about the vistas of economic performance than some of the other assessments that you hear nowadays. When I do my nerdy little simplistic uh, models of sticking in human resources and trying to uh, imagine what sort of national economic performance you get, 3% a year per capita looks pretty good, which would be less than 3% uh, a year aggregate, of course, because the population is going to be shrinking. Um, In historical uh, perspective, uh, growth on that order is, uh, is very creditable. But if we look at Chinese government ambitions today, that might be a horrifying assessment. Um, I don't think that we can tell yet 
which, how, let's put it this way, I don't think we can tell yet how the Chinese regime will fare with much slower economic growth than it has today, even if by some objective standard that growth would look pretty good for the world as a whole. Incredibly interesting. We covered a lot of ground, but there's a lot that we didn't cover. So if you're interested in this topic, I encourage you to check out China's demographic outlook to 2040 and its implications and overview. Dr. Eberstadt, thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for inviting me. It's a lot of fun for me. Thanks as always to our listeners for tuning in and thank Matt Weinset for his first uh, episode co-hosting. And thank you for pronouncing my last name right. You're very welcome. We look forward to having you on uh, many more episodes. And if you're not already, we encourage you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or the podcast player of your choice. And as always, you can send comments, commentary, and feedback to banter at AEI.org. We'll be back next week with another episode. But until then, for Dr. Nicholas Eberstadt and Matt Weinset, this is Spencer Moore signing off. Music.